The information shared as part of this carbon series is general in nature. We're asking questions of Professor Richard Eckhart, and he's providing his insights from his expertise. Humans of Agriculture doesn't endorse any of his views as part of this. They're really designed to just be conversation starters. And if you want to get more information, please reach out to specialists and experts in the carbon space. Welcome back to Carbon Shortcuts, an introduction to all things carbon in Aussie agriculture. This four-part series is designed to get you up to speed on the things that matter in Aussie agribusiness. And for us, it has been a really interesting conversation with Professor Richard Eckhard from the University of Melbourne. This series has been sponsored by Ruminati, and you can hear more about them by jumping back one episode where I sit down with co-founder Bobby Miller, a farmer from Jugion. Or you can listen to the takeaways at the end of this episode. Sam, we've covered, let's say, lots of country. We've even covered the world in this, the whole supply chain, scope one, two, three. Where are we at for the final episode in this series? So we covered the all too commonly used environmental terms and what they each mean, which has been really helpful. And we've covered supply chain and industry targets. Now let's get into understanding more within the farm gate. So Rich touches on the cost of targeted methane inhibitors and the simple economics not adding up. So we find out a little bit more about Rich, which is great and what makes him passionate about ag. And if he had Elon Musk's wallet, he said he would lock the brightest minds in the world in a room until they came out with a methane-free cow, which definitely pricked our ears up. It certainly has, and it's been a bit of a feature of this series. So I think if people do have any questions on this as well, make sure you hit us up, hit follow, subscribe, because I'm sure this is only going to be the beginning of the conversation, but let's get into this episode. Rich, one thing I'm interested, you're living and breathing this space. What's something that has changed your perspective or that you've learned recently as, I guess, your understanding of the carbon space continues to evolve as the global space does as well? Yeah, look, I think what's evolving and we're coalescing on is that some sectors don't have much of a target to get to carbon neutrality. Other sectors like the livestock industries, you really have to think that carbon neutrality for livestock is probably quite a long way off or not achievable in some cases. Why I say that is, you know, in confinement systems, you can feed animals on an additive or an inhibitor that will eliminate the methane. We know that in feedlot cattle, we could feed Bovier as a product and reduce methane by 80% tomorrow. That's current technology. You try and apply that to the Kimberley, where we don't even know where the cattle are, let alone how many they are, let alone feed them something. And so I've come to the conclusion that We're in this transition zone where we care about carbon right now. We care about emissions. Where emissions can be reduced, they will be required to be reduced. But in the extensive livestock industries where there's no other mechanism to make food out of grass, we might come to a 2040 realization that we value the livestock production and we value the biodiversity they manage more than we value the small amount of carbon they produce. And so I think that has to still play out that some of the extensive industries may never be carbon neutral by definition. But society will say, well, you know, there's a thousand budgies flying around on the property. We value that more than we value a small amount of methane. And you've just given us our prelude to our next series. No, I think it is fascinating. And like just over the first three episodes that we've done, Rich, I've learned so much through you. And I hope you're patient to deal with my basic questions just for a little bit longer. What are some of the tools, technologies and opportunities that you're seeing are having the greatest results across the whole of the agriculture sector, whether that's in livestock, in viticulture, horticulture, et cetera? 
Yeah, so in terms of tools, look, there's not a lot of action on reducing emissions today. We know what to do in many instances, but where we're working is trying to think outside the square and how can we achieve a major step forward without farmers having to do a whole lot more than they're currently doing. That's the real challenge. So, for example, in the grains industry, we've come up with a pre-farm plan on how to reduce 50% of all grains cropping emissions across the economy without farmers doing anything. Now, you might think that sounds too good to be true. Well, it's going to ask you, then that's not additionality. Well, we don't care about carbon markets and additionality only applies if you're trying to sell carbon. So think like additionality is only if you want to generate a carbon credit and sell it, then we care about additionality. But if you're not trying to generate a credit, if you're just trying to contribute to a national outcome, then you don't care about additionality, you care about what the atmosphere sees. And so this approach sees something like of a cropping industry, if you look at the pie chart of a cropping industry, one third of it is urea manufacture, the energy required to manufacture urea. We've got eight projects funded by the Australian Renewable Energy Agency looking at producing that urea with green hydrogen. One would say, if they don't achieve that in the next 10 years, well, then it's not achievable. There are two companies that are providing to use small-scale solar energy on-farm to generate ammonia. That bypasses all of that process. And you can do small-scale renewable energy on-farm hydrogen. That's one-third of your cropping industry's emissions gone. The second one is accounting error, where we've managed to change the crop residue factor. So the second pie slice of that pie, it was using an old accounting construct out of the EU, and we've already said it's going from 1% to 0.5. So we've halved that just through an accounting change. The third one is the nitrous oxide from farm use of urea or fertilizer. And so we've put forward a proposal with Fertilizer Australia and 20 of the fertilizer companies in Australia to just move to coating all fertilizer with a nitrification inhibitor, which would drop that figure by 69% overnight. Now, the trick comes in, who's going to pay for it? Because the fertilizer companies don't want to pay for it, because it's about 14% more expensive. The farmer's not going to pay for it, because the average grain farmer loses grams of nitrous oxide per hectare, not kilograms, so they'll never get a productivity benefit. But we've put a plan to government to say, if you buy that, it would then become 5% dearer, not 15 to 14%, because if, if everyone's doing it, it's a niche product right now, but if everyone does it, it's 5% more. And that would be the most transparent transaction that government can do to buy an emission reduction in a sector where there's nothing, no action at the moment. So we've got a lot of action in carbon dioxide, we've got a lot of investment in methane, but there's nothing on the table for nitrous oxide right now. Here's a plan where government could step in and say, well, it's more transparent than buying avoided deforestation that didn't reduce emissions at all. You know, 21 million carbon credits went into avoided deforestation and that did not change Australia's account at all. Didn't go down. Here is a strategy where you can spend money like that and buy a market failure. Why I say it's a market failure is because there's no incentive for farmers to do it, but there's every incentive for the public good. So it's a public good market failure, which is where government steps in. So that's a proposal put together to Fertiliser Australia and Fertiliser Australia and the NFF have endorsed it to government. And if you think about the implications of that, government steps in for a reduced, for a limited amount of time and literally buys a 50% reduction or incentivizes a 50% reduction in emissions from Australian agriculture, Australian cropping agriculture. Now, we know that Cargill, Olam, these international buyers are on the national global stage looking to buy the lowest emissions product first because they've got a target. 
And the more they buy higher emissions targets out of Europe, for example, we already know that Western Australian canola comes in at half the emissions of European canola because we grow it in a low environment. Imagine if we drop it another 50% again through this mechanism. There would be no one to beat us being first in the door in selling grain to international buyers on the global stage, helping them achieve their global target. This is where I think we can start thinking slightly more innovatively and saying, well, we've got a big problem with methane, but hang on, here's something here we can do tomorrow. Technology's already there. We can do it tomorrow. All 20 fertilizer companies are on board and we can just knock out half the emissions overnight. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? <laughs> Rich, the solutions that are gaining traction and specifically to the livestock industry, what are some of the issues around the adoption and the implementation there? Yeah, look, first, so, so if we split them into two categories, the one is the do now, no regrets, best practice, efficiency gains. There's no downside to those. The ones we mentioned about legumes and earlier finishing and better weaning rates, nothing, no downside there. That's just straight standard best practice adoption. If you go to the targeted methane inhibitors, the biggest problem is cost because there's no incentive currently for a farmer to do it. And we know, for example, the pain point for, just say it's safe for a dairy farmer. For a dairy farmer, the pain point for a methane inhibitor is about seven cents a day. And the closest inhibitor on the market is 30 cents a day and seaweed is $1.50. But the pain point is seven cents. So we're quite a way off the pain point. That has to be a major impediment. The second obvious one is if you think about an inhibitor, the more active it is at every microsite in the rumen of an animal, the more effective it is. So that means that if you're in a confinement system and every mouthful the animal's getting has got this active inhibitor in it, yeah, you could get 80% reduction in methane. And that's been shown many times in research. But the moment you go out to a grazing system where they're getting it maybe once a day or they're getting it once a week, well, now you're down at 5% effective, not even double digits. So there's a lot of research going in into slow-release biopolymers or uh, direct injection into drinking water, those kind of things that, that may be able to deliver these inhibitors in more extensive grazing systems. But all the while remembering the pain point because there's no productivity enhancement for the animals. And so unless there's a market access or a carbon credit or something like that can incentivize action, adoption is going to be a real tricky issue. And on the note of market access, something that you touched on previously around, you know, the market being new, it's growing quickly, but the hurdles of toxicology? Yeah, look, it's something that, that does worry me a lot, particularly in an environment where there's a lot of enthusiasm to reduce methane quickly. And I always relate the New Zealand DCD story when it comes to this, where New Zealand had done a lot of research on dicyane diamide. It's a precursor of urea and it is a nitrification inhibitor. And they had developed this way of spraying it on dairy pastures to keep all the urine in the ammonium form and not let it become nitrous oxide. Great. Completely benign in the human food chain already. Any plastic packaging of food leaks DCD into the food. So I can guarantee you everyone here has actually eaten the stuff before. That became the limitation because it was picked up in milk in China from New Zealand. And then the Chinese used the U.S. Codex list and the U.S. Codex list said it's too safe to list. We won't list it. Because they didn't list it, the default position in China was zero tolerance. So all milk from New Zealand got banned 
because of a completely benign chemical that was considered too benign to even be on the list of banned chemicals, but it banned all the new milk from New Zealand. Now, there's not even a toxicology issue. That's just lack of due diligence in understanding the marketplace you're playing in. So that'll, that'll fix itself. But now you translate it to some of the secondary compounds that we might be feeding in inhibitors that are known to be ozone-depleting chemicals, known to be human carcinogenic chemicals. And you think, have we really, before we go too far down the track on getting big markets to start getting enthusiastic about these, you really have to look at the true effect on ozone, on the ecosystem. On There's so many things in due diligence needed to be covered before we can start feeding all our cattle and in 10 years' time figure out we're saving a bit of methane that destroyed the ozone layer. It's a really interesting example that you gave New Zealand to China. A completely benign chemical, but there was a little angle in it. And the little angle is that DCD is a precursor of melamine, which is a precursor of urea. And you remember the melamine scandal with AV formula in China? So now suddenly New Zealand milk comes along with a chemical that's a precursor of melamine, and you can imagine how that just went ballistic in China. So all for the wrong reasons, and a completely benign chemical. It will come back, it will be used again, but it's completely banned at the moment for no good reason. And ironically, we're now using more toxic inhibitors as a result because they haven't been banned. <laughs> I think it's fascinating, Rich. So I guess we've got the New Zealand learnings. What about learnings in Australia around this carbon space? What are some of the learnings that we've had to date that we need to make sure we've actually learned from for the, I guess, the benefit and for the good of Australian farmers going forward? Yeah, I think the, the biggest learning is you throw a pile of cash out there for easy grabbing and you will get nefarious behavior. Now, you know, let me be careful. Not all carbon aggregators are bad, but there is some serious bad behavior out there that is not in the interest of farmers. And that's typical. You, anywhere where there's too much money floating around, you will get that behavior. And they might be good players, they might be honest brokers, but they're brokering things that are not in the interest of most farmers. In particular, Soil carbon and tree carbon, I think, are two areas where you want to be really careful because you're locking your property into long-term commitments that you're selling out of a finite resource that you might need for yourself. And so without understanding the market we're playing in, there's a lot of farmers that are stepping into the market and seeing short-term revenue instead of seeing the long-term pain that's going to come as a result of selling that short-term revenue. But the next generation on their farm inherit these liabilities with no cash income to support them. I think that's a big issue. Before we go to a couple of fun questions, Sam or Rich, is there anything else that you wanted to add at this stage? Yeah, that wasn't a fun answer, was it? <laughs> we'll get there. I think in the discussion I've had with the major banks, and that's at least three, four of them, in, in, in the, playing in the agricultural space, they're not worried about financed emissions around the food sector, even the livestock sector. They want to be part of action towards low emissions futures, that's no problem. They still see the public perception of agricultural emissions as being something that we're all in it together with the farmers because this is our food. So I think it's fundamentally different to the fossil fuel sector, which we already know we don't need. By 2050, we know we don't need it because it's just, you know, there's only a few intractable issues left. But then it differentiates. The bank's have said we would happily invest in emissions avoidance technologies and farms, but they sort of run scared on sequestration because of too many people, too many risks to climate variability, rainfall, 
you know, which is employment variability, fire risk, and the residual liability of an easement on the property when the banks are mortgaging the property. I think sequestration is fast going out of mode in financed emission, in financing from the major banks. Uh, emissions avoidance, I think, will still be quite acceptable. So, you know, both NAB and Rabobank have come out and said they want net zero financed emissions in their agricultural loan portfolio by 2050. All banks have to report to APRA on the emissions exposure in their loan portfolio. That's already happening. And the next big tranche of finance coming out of Europe into Australia is tied to environmental performance in the, in the farm portfolio. So we know that these ESG things are, are rolling out in the finance sector where in order to qualify for certain buckets of money as loan, you're going to have to demonstrate environmental performance. It's well on the agenda. But I think in fairness to the banks, they want to move fairly quickly to a more holistic perspective rather than a myopic perspective on carbon. And I think that's really where the biodiversity angle comes in, the water use efficiency angle comes in saying, can we have a portfolio that meets the intent of more than one of these environmental performance indicators? And this goes to my point about the northern cattle industry maybe balancing the one against the other and saying, we've done really well on biodiversity, we're doing exceptionally well on water use efficiency, but there's not much we can do about methane because the termites are producing more. Richard, what would you say gets you most excited about the ag industry and why you've dedicated your life's work to this space? Oh, it's a hard one. You know, my history has been animals in livestock production. But what really gets me excited is, is the move towards a balanced view of how we're going to keep doing this in a thousand years' time. That's really what I want to see as an outcome. And that's why you hear me say things like, can we move to a value future, not a volume future? Because all the signal we've been sending farmers up until now has been more volume, more volume, more volume. Put more grain in the hold of a ship, put more milk powder in the hold of a ship. We can't do that because that's extractive. So for me, I started with the word sustainability, and that was 40 years ago. I think we've burned that word pretty comprehensively because everybody claims to be sustainable now. But there's a new philosophy coming through saying we want to leave it better than we found it. And that's where I get the buzz out of it saying, how are we going to make sure the next generation inherit better farms than the farms we have today? And I think, like Rich, to that, the Kiwis and, and the Maoris especially, they talk a lot about their children's children. And I think that's something which is really powerful where I think in farming people have talked about it probably where it's about handing it over to the next generation and the generation after that. So I think it's naturally already part of our vernacular when it comes to that type of sustainability. It is giving people that opportunity. Yeah, exactly. So I was in New Zealand last week and, and I had a couple of introductions by Maori people on their value systems. And it really occurred to me that they view air and water as a shared resource. We all own it. We all have a hand in it. And so we take that attitude, I think, and the same with the land. We all own the land here and we want to be able to drink the water in 100 years' time. We want to be able to breathe the air in 100 years' time. So why don't we share the outcome? So, Rich, one final question. If you've got Elon Musk's wallet and you can pursue just one project, what are you pursuing? Well, knowing that there's a lot of action towards net zero everything else, we'd probably get two or three of the smartest minds in the world and lock them in a room and say, don't come out until you've got a methane-free cow. One of the problems we've got in agriculture is someone like myself at a professor level, I spend 50% of my time lobbying for cash. 50% of my research time of the time that I'm meant to actually come up with solutions, the bean counters thinks it's most efficient for me to go out and lobby for cash. 
I don't think that's the best way to use our resources. So actually what I would do is get rid of the competitive grant mechanism and just say, let's fund scientists 100% of their time on the focus on the problem. And then I think we'll get somewhere. Very well said, Rich. Well, thank you so much for taking part and I guess sharing your wisdom and lifetime of knowledge so far with us in this space. It's been fascinating to sit down with you and Sam. It's been very good fun to be asking the questions alongside you. It's been great to be part of it. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, absolutely. Good discussion. So that's a wrap on our Carbon Shortcuts. It really has just been an introduction to all things carbon in Aussie agriculture. And we hope you found this series really useful. I know I've enjoyed sitting down with and getting to tap into Richard's mind, getting questions answered, which I guess I've been really curious about, but also ones which have been fed into us from the broader community. So Sam... Thank you so much for being a co-host on this series. I'm, I'm sure we'll probably be doing something again soon in the near future. It's been a pleasure, Ollie, and it's been a really fun and complicated topic to delve into. Now, if you missed our episode with Bobby Miller, we've got a few little outtakes as to what is Ruminati, where are they going into the future, and how can you get access to it. If you want to find out any more about them, hit the link in our show notes or go to ruminati.com.au, and we'll see you next time in the Know On The Go podcast. See ya.